I want to invite us all to stand. Would you stand with me as we read from the word this morning? In the book of Psalms chapter 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. The word of God. Please be seated. As we lead into the Advent season, there are a lot of emotions around this time. Lots of good emotions, a lot of bad emotions, joyous emotions, chaotic emotions. And we thought it would be great to take the church through a short trip in the Psalms. The Psalms is a book of of thanksgiving and praise. And it's also a book of confusion and fear and violence. Kind of like the holidays. It can be messy and poetic and real. The psalmist is honest. Honest with his emotions. Honest with his writings. He's pulling and tugging, questioning and praising. And he's putting it out there for everyone to see and to read. So today we start into these psalms. The thanksgiving and the praise and the confusion and the anger and all of it. And we start with one of the most well-known chapters in the book of Psalms. Psalms chapter 23. Right away we notice in chapter 23 that it begins with a metaphor. Yahweh is my shepherd. I shall not want. Yahweh is my shepherd. I think understanding this this metaphor, this sentence, is the key for unlocking the rest of the chapter, for the rest of this psalm here. And so um, we we just want to dial in a little bit to to watch how this metaphor begins to open up and how it begins to dictate how the rest of the chapter goes, whether God is a shepherd in the beginning or, or God is a host towards the end of it. This metaphor is going to lead us, I believe. Metaphors are powerful. They're powerful because they, they bring color and depth to language. They're unrestricted by, by the lines of words, and they allow the imagination to roam a little bit. They, they give us space to breathe into the story some and, and see where the writers are taking us. The communicator says things that are metaphoric, and, and between the communicator and the communicatee, they are able to imagine something larger Because of these narratives, Uh, like slang. Slang is metaphoric poetry. But but the thing with metaphors is that you have to understand understand the context 
in order to really get the full meaning of metaphors, right? Like slang. You have to, you have to understand what these words and its context means if it's going to have any meaning for all of us together, right? So when you hear young people talking and they say words that they say, and you're like, I don't know what he's talking about. It's because we don't fully understand the context of that metaphor. Now, I grew up in the 90s. Any 90s people here say amen? So some of you are familiar with the slang of those days. You remember the word, oh, the phrase, oh, that's the bomb. And then for those of you who are too young, you may not remember, but that's when websites started coming out. So we thought it was cool to say, oh, that's the bomb. Dot <laughs> some old people in here. That's the bomb.com. Right? Or how about when you were like upset at somebody and they were trying to talk to you, you would say, talk to the hand. Ooh, I hated that so much. I hated that. I hated when people put their hand, talk to the hand. No, I'm going to bite your hand off. Stop doing that. <sighs> Another phrase from the 90s, you go, girl. You go. And if you weren't uh, familiar with that phrase, you might come in as a young lady and be like, oh, where am I going? I got to go. You go, girl. It means you got this. Get it, girl. You know, another one we said that I'm really glad we no longer slay. One of the things from the 90s says, yo, that's fat. Does anybody remember that? But instead of F-A-T was what? P-H-A-T. Some of you are confused looking at me. You're like, what is he talking about? This was the 90s. I remember as a, as a young pastor coming out of church, heading towards the fellowship hall. And as I was heading towards the fellowship hall, one of our, our beautiful saints was there. And she was just tearing into one of the young adults, just, just shredding him up. And I, said, and I was thinking, this is why. This is why our young people are leaving the church. Look at how this lady is just, boy, she's just leaning into him real hard and heavy. And so I get over there, and she's like, don't you ever, ever do that again. I was like, I was like, hey, hey, let's all just praise the Lord. Happy Sabbath. It's still the Sabbath. Peace be with us all. What's going on here? She says, Pastor, you better talk to this young man. And I said, oh, I will. I will. I'll talk to him. And she walks off. And I said, what'd you do? And he says, I was trying to be, you know, like cool with her. And I said, well, what did you do to try to be cool with her? He says, you know, I said, yo, you're fat. And I was like, what? I said, did you say, yo, you're P-H-A-T fat? And he said, no, I was going to say you're fat. And I waited and I paused for effect. And I said, well, that's the effect that you get for not clarifying. And I had to go to talk later. I said, I am so sorry. She said, how could he call me fat like that in church? I said, oh, that's because, you see, um, there's, a, there's a term that young people use today, and it means, it means you're cool. She says, are you telling me what he was trying to say is that I was cool? <laughs> I was like, believe it or not, I know, I know you don't believe it, but he was really trying to tell you you're amazing and awesome. And she said, well, what does that have to do with my weight? <laughs> See, it's too hard to explain right now. Just trust me. Just trust me. And I, I had to, to go look it up, and, and, and I showed her. You know, I said, look, see, P-H-A-T, it's the thing that young people said. And she said, oh, mercy, I must have hurt his feelings. I said, well, he should have clarified. Metaphors are more meaningful when we have context. When young people say words like drip, that's kind of a thing now. It means stylish, right? Drip. Yo, that means stylish, or, or words like extra. The young people say, man, you're being extra. And in my mind, as an old people, I think, thank you. 
Because that's like extra credit or extra points or I'm more than just like fundamental. But extra means you're being drama. So sometimes when my daughter says, oh, dad, you're being extra. Don't you say that to me. I know what that means because I'm the bomb, okay? (laughs) We use metaphors because it helps us express and experience big ideas. It helps us to wrestle with and grapple and understand and grasp the world that we live in and how we see it. We do it with God. We do it with love. We do it with complex, big emotions and things. We've written this way for many years. We we hear it in the way we sing, whether it's the hymns or praise. Come thou fount of many blessings. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Come thou fount. God is a fount of many blessings. We would sing, as the deer panteth for the, so my soul longeth after you. As the deer panteth for the water, so my And and, uh, in the late 90s, we created songs that would say things like, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. We speak in metaphors. We sing in metaphors. Our young people today, you might hear them if you're listening to them do praise, even if it's not, even if it's not your thing, but they get into the groove and they're singing to God. And you might hear them say, going through a storm, but I won't go down. I hear your voice carried in the rhythm of the wind to call me out. You would cross an ocean so I wouldn't drown. You've never been closer than you are right now. Jaira. Mm. We use metaphors because they're powerful, because it helps us grasp things that are just slightly out of touch for us. So immediately we're introduced to this metaphor here in Psalms 23, Yahweh as shepherd. We've been very acquainted with with the shepherd motif. Uh, we've heard we've heard it and, and, and we've listened to it being preached. John 10:10, 10, 10, right here. Pastor Raywin did it a few weeks ago. When Jesus is my shepherd, but here again the idea of shepherd comes forth. And so as I approach chapter 23 this week, I had a few questions. Is there something else? Is there another metaphorical context that I'm missing out on for shepherd here? And and here in the text, do do any of us really not? want anymore? Uh, Because as a Christian, Jesus has filled my life, but I find that I still want things. If you still want things, say amen. Amen. It's good to not be the only sinner in the room. And then I thought, what is the arc of this chapter? Where are we moving to? How are we getting there? Is it the lying in the green pastures or the right path? Maybe it's, it's the death valley or, or the enemies that surround me. Or is it the sanctuary that I'm in in the Lord's house? Where is the ark here? So let's return back to the metaphor that we were introduced to in the beginning. The very first thing the psalmist writes is Yahweh. Yahweh. Now we've been introduced to Yahweh back in Exodus when Yahweh first showed up on the scene and connected with a shepherd uh, in the wilderness by the name of Moses. Turn to somebody say Moses. Moses. Yes. He meets a shepherd on the side of the mountain named Moses. And he says, Moses, I need you to go and lead my people out of oppression. 
So go. And so he sends Moses, and Moses heads into, uh, back into Egypt, and he begins to shepherd those people out. He begins to move them out. And just before they move out, they stop to partake and celebrate in Pesach, in the, in the Passover, where they have unleavened bread, and they drink a cup of wine there amongst their enemies. And then God leads them out. And as God leads them towards the Red Sea, they are followed by their enemies. Now, I won't spend a ton of time diving into each of those little phrases, but I want you to look back to Psalm 23 later on and start having conversations and discuss what are these things that follow Moses, really, the shepherding and the wine before the banquet, before my enemies. Yahweh has been introduced. Moses leads the people. They get to the Red Sea. Yahweh uh, divides the Red Sea. They move through it. And God leads them through the wilderness, providing them with everything they need. Everything they need. This Yahweh, the psalmist writes, is my Yahweh. This Yahweh who makes a way in the wilderness is my Yahweh. This Yahweh who cannot stand to see the oppressed and the, the marginalized and the, the dis, uh, disenfranchised out there who wants to pull them out of these places. This is my Yahweh. Ah, this Yahweh is my shepherd. Now I want to pause on shepherd for a little bit because shepherd is kind of a loaded term that is full of relational layers. There's probably four here that, yeah, there's, there's four here that I want to just quickly discuss. So now we recognize the identity of Yahweh. Yahweh is, is the one who made a way where there was no way. And Yahweh, in this metaphor, is the psalmist shepherd, is the shepherd of the, the communal people, the collective group. So the, 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 the shepherd here has relational layers. The first one is pastoral. Yahweh is a, is a shepherd, a pastor, a caretaker, one who, um, who embodies wisdom and instruction and inspiration, one who watches over and, and is a ready help at all times. This is, this is Yahweh, the shepherd, as a pastor. Also, there's a relational layer of plural so Yahweh is the collective uh, shepherd for the, for the body, for the flock. The flock goes where the shepherd goes. This is a plural uh, 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 idea of the shepherd here, where he is leading the group. And the group goes where God goes. Then there's a personal relational layer. I am personally being cared for by the shepherd. The shepherd loves me. God loves me. And in case you haven't heard this um, in a while, or maybe, maybe you're visiting with us and you had not heard of this idea before, I want it to be clear in your minds that when you leave here, you should know that God loves you. I need you to turn and tell somebody that. Would you, just, would you just mention that somebody right now? Just matter of fact. Hey, I just want you to know God loves you. Reach out to somebody else and say, hey, 
you know what? God loves you. If you haven't heard this, God loves you. This is a personal relational layer of what it means to be the shepherd. That the God, the, the good shepherd, is the one who loves the sheep. So in case you missed it somewhere, or maybe it's been a distracting week. There's been a lot of wars, and there's been a lot of shootings, and there's been a lot of parent-teacher conferences, and overtime that you've had to work, and, and health issues, and problems, and the world keeps seems to colliding in, and it's easy to get distracted. I want you to pull back together and know that God loves you. God loves you. This is a personal, relational layer of the shepherd. And still yet, there's one more layer of relationship here to the shepherd. James May, along with Many a number of scholars points out that in the ancient Near East, there in those areas of tribal nations, the role and the title of shepherd were used for leaders as a designation for their relation to people they were in charge of. And it, it, it had very specific royal connotations. So um, in that area... In the known world at that time, a shepherd could be another name for king. A king, would, that would be the metaphor for a king or a leader or the person who's in charge of and in care of the people. They are shepherds. It's reflected in our Old Testament, in our Hebrew Bible. We see it in 2 Samuel and 1 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. This idea that the leader is the shepherd of the people. The people, for instance, phrases like, the people have no shepherd or rulers who I have commanded to shepherd my people. And so when we say shepherd, the psalmist here, I think, helps us see a different kind of declaration. A, a, a new, maybe, maybe a new or maybe a nuanced way to look at this. And that is a political perspective that I choose and declare my allegiance to the shepherd. That is who it is. The people who have no shepherd or the people who's had shepherds like Egypt that were oppressive are, are, are destructive. But the good shepherd, Yahweh, the one who is the God of rest, and renewal, and goodness, and love, and grace, and forgiveness. This is who I bet my citizenship on. This is who I follow. His allegiance, the psalmist declares, is to the good shepherd. There are experiences that you and I assume the, the psalmist has to be able to make this claim experiences that are not like the good shepherd. Their experiences other under leaders and other kings and other governments that just didn't seem to pan out right. His allegiance will not be to those kings or to other leaders or other empires or other governments or even other corporations who contrary to Yahweh always led the people into inequity, oppression, exclusion, and Violence, that is not the way of the good shepherd. 
So the psalmist in his proclamation here, Yahweh is my shepherd, is, is recognizing that the psalmist has tried ways and knows the outcome. And, and so because he knows the outcome of these different ways, he chooses to follow Yahweh. The kingdom come, your will be done is the rhythm of our church every week because we too recognize that our citizenship is to no government or no leader, but it is to the good shepherd. Yahweh will be there and his allegiance to us is as pure and right and modeled for our allegiance to Yahweh. Yahweh is the shepherd king. Um, a couple years ago, I went out and did a weekend retreat across uh, this great, beautiful United States of the America. And uh, on the way, I, after I was done, one of the uh, families there said, hey, would you like to go eat? And obviously, I'm going to say yes. So I went to go eat with them. And we ate, and um, they said, wow, you eat a lot. I said, well, you're paying, so I guess that's how it goes. So I'm eating, I'm eating, I'm eating, and, and they're talking, and I'm eating, and we're talking, and I order some more food, and I'm eating, and it's good food. And then after lunch, the gentleman sitting across the table says, hey, uh, by the way, when's your flight? I said, well, you know, it's 1.30. And he says, good sir, it's 1.20. I said, oh. Guess I'll be eating a lot more then since I'm not in a rush. He said, so what are you going to do? I said, I, I didn't realize I was going to miss my plane. I, it's your fault. Y'all y'all took me. You offered food. How was I going to say no to that? That's, that's, and so the gentleman says, no problem. Let me take care of this for you. He calls the airline. says, hey. And they said, hey. His first name he said, hey, hey, hey. Like they were best friends. And he says, you know, I've got a friend here who needs a flight home. Would you put him on a plane? He says, oh, for you, anything. I said, whoa, for me, anything. And he says, yeah. He says, why don't you put him on first class? Friends, I was 45 at the time. I'd never been on first class before. But he says, you're going to fly home in first class. And so I get to the airport. And, and the minute I get to the airport to put my ticket in, everything changes. You may not know this if you don't fly first class. But once they see your first class, they treat you like first class. They love you. They care for you. They had people carry me to my seat. I get on the plane, right? I get on the plane, and um, there's that thin veil, and I get to it, and he says, sir, you go this way. And when he pulled it back, it was like, I heard chimes. I walk in, and the seats are larger, and they care for you, and they love you, and they treat you right. And I'm sitting there, and I'm, I'm in the very back of first class, but it's first class. And I look down the aisle, and I look at these peasants. Behind me. And I said, I feel sorry for you. It wasn't much of a veil, but it was just enough for me to feel real special. And I, I've been back there. I know how tight those seats are. I know, like, and, and if you're lucky, uh, like me, to be a, a giant human being, to sit next to another giant human being, it's tight. It's, you have to coordinate your breathing. <sighs> one at a time, one at a time. Rough. Our legs are bent up. We're doing yoga the whole flight. They don't bring you food. They bring you like snacks and you pay for it. In first class, they bring you water in a glass. I didn't even know you had glass in airplanes. I thought it was illegal. 
me tell you, once I got off the plane off of first class, I could never go back to normal again. But of course I had to because I'm poor. But the first trip we had with my wife and the kids, I said, honey, listen, you know, what if I got a row for you three because there's usually only three seats together and then I get a seat somewhere else? And she's like, you're so sweet. What are you going to do? I said, I'll just find a seat. I'll, I'll book a seat closer to the, the, the front. And she said, uh, how, how close? How close are you talking about? I said, uh, somewhere up there. And she said, like, like, you know, don't, like how far? And I said, like first class. And she's like, brother, if I'm not going first class, you ain't going no first class. You get your butt in the back next to the toilet all the way to the back where the seat doesn't even decline. You just sit there the whole time like this. But once I experience first class, every time I get on a plane, let me tell you, this is not true. Every time I get on a plane, just one tear drops out of my eye when I look at first class. I just, I miss you so much. Because once you've experienced what the good life is like, it's hard to go back to the bad life. And the, and the psalmist here talks about um, how he has experienced what it's like to have to be under different leaders in different governments. But you, oh great shepherd, you are first class. You are my choice every time. I want to follow you wherever you lead because the option otherwise, the alternative is not worthy of my worship. In the words of the unknown author who wrote the Afro-American spiritual, in the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. Give me Jesus in the green pastures. Give me Jesus by the still waters. Give me Jesus on the right path. And give me Jesus in the darkest valleys. Give me Jesus before my enemies. And give me Jesus in the sanctuary. You can have all this world. But give me Jesus. The declaration for us today is to give our allegiance to the good shepherd. The point is, no matter what season or scene I find my life to be in, it will invariably change. Some of you uh, are, are praising God to hear that today. Some of you are in some dark and deep and heavy valleys. I want you to know it will change. Some of us are in green pastures. Others of us are by the still waters, resting in the living water of Jesus. It will change. All these things will change. But the point is, no matter what season or scene I find myself in, I have chosen the way of the good shepherd, for the good shepherd has chosen me. I have chosen the way of the good shepherd, says the psalmist, because the shepherd has chosen me. What does that look like for my life in practice? To, to, to walk the way of the good shepherd. I have a, a good friend um, who was a member of mine in a former life. And he was uh, uh, one of our neighbors without a home. But he, he always came to church. Man, I, if nobody else comes to church, I know he will be in church. 
And he'd drive up, and he'd have a car, and he'd live in that car, and the car was stacked up with all kinds of stuff, you know, and his voice is like this, and, and his name was Hugo. So I'd say, hey, Hugo, hello, pastor, it's very good to see you today. I love you, I love you, I love you. And after the sermon, say, hey, pastor, I love your sermons, pastor. I love you, I love you, I love you. I love you, Hugo, I love you, I love you. And one day, I realized, I, I had caught him doing something that um, I realized uh, he had been doing the whole time and nobody had noticed. And this was a little bit precarious to me. And so my, my, my spidey senses went off as I saw him do it. You know what he was doing every weekend? He would be paying money into the tithe and offering. He'd come in and, and, and he'd be real slick about it. He'd sit in the back, but he'd roll out some really old, wrinkled, broken up dollar bills. And he'd just, I gotta put it in, I gotta put it in there. And so I called him after church one day. He's, he's walking out. I ran up. I said, Hugo. He says, oh, hey, pastor, I love you. I love you. I love you too. Hey, tell me something. He says, yes. I said, have you been putting money in the offering plate? He says, yes, pastor, I have. I said, Hugo, you're homeless. He says, oh, well, I know. I live in my car. I said, Hugo, I don't want you to pay any money to the church anymore. You need that money. Hugo teaches me a lesson in that moment. He says, Pastor, if I don't practice how to give to Jesus now, how will I know to give to Jesus when I have a house? Isn't that powerful? That even in, the, even in his valley, man who lives in his car, who has junk all over. He practices his giving and his trust to God. Not, not because he's hoping to get rich. Not because he's hoping. He knows that God's not going to give him back anything. Not because he thinks the church is right and perfect. That Hugo was a grown man who had been through many churches. And knew just how broken the systems was. But for Hugo. Hugo, this moment for him is how he poured his trust into God. As God being his shepherd. I said, Hugo, okay. You pay tithe and offering from your heart. And you have blessed the church immensely. And I called up my wife. She said, hey, I said, hey, we're going to start giving extra. <laughs> we got to start giving extra. <laughs> because if Hugo's doing it, it's his practice of trust in the great shepherd. How dare we not do the same? It has become a story of practice for me, of learning to do as the good shepherd does, because the good shepherd has chosen me. Coming up is Black Friday, and then after Black Friday, there's Cyber Monday, and then there's Giving Tuesday, and there's Broke Wednesday. <laughs> do I choose the way of the good shepherd? Against retail therapy and fast fashion and the idea that I'm not happy so I need to buy something else. Do I choose the way of the good shepherd? In a busy world that drives me out of the green pastures to do more and accomplish more for my lame, for my life and my name's sake. Do I choose the way of the good shepherd? In the darkest valleys of my life waiting for help. Hoping for healing, struggling with relationships, 
hurting and in, in, in being wounded by toxic systems, lost in my purpose? Do I choose the good shepherd? With different pundits and politicians and influencers in my ear telling me where my allegiance should be, who I should be merciful towards, and who I should, should, should have revenge against, do I choose the good shepherd? In the midst of people who would rather see me burn and go down, do I choose the good shepherd? Do we choose the good shepherd? You can have all this world. Give me Jesus. I want to close with a, a quick little story uh, uh, in honor of some amazing boys. So last weekend, last year Academy Knights volleyball team won the championships. They took it. <clears throat> it was a nail biter. Let me tell you, we went all five rounds. The final score was 14 to 11 in a game 215. It was a nail biter. And, and, and we lost the very first set. We won the second set. Uh, we, we lost the third set. We won the fourth set. Then we had to play a fifth set. It was late. But by the third set, I was like, somebody win. I need to go home and go to sleep. I'm old. But these boys kept fighting through, right? They had this fighting spirit in them. And we had done it all season long. We had been together. We had seen ourselves been down before. We keep coming back. They, they lift each other up. There's a strong sense of, of, of communal connection. There's a co collective-like spirit there. And they really want to do this. They want to win. It was about the fourth set. I had changed the, the formation of how we were playing. You don't need to know what a formation is and what kind of formations they were. We just changed it. We switched it up. And when you change the formation, it switches up how everybody's supposed to sub in. And I'm there, the head coach. And my sister is there sitting on the bench who's a no coach but coaches anyways. She's like the coach backseat driver of coaches, right? And she's in the back. And she's yelling at me, ha, 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 ha. Come on, Ricky. Ha, 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 ha. Now I'm little brother, so I've got to take that. That's what I get. That's my job as little brother. Let my sister make fun of me the whole time. I'm there. We're playing the game, and the, the boys had gotten used to a rotation they were doing before. And so um, at this game, there was a new substitution a rotation that we had to do. And at one point, I called in Alan. I said, Alan, go in. And Alan runs onto the court. He subs in. And when he comes in the court, there's so much distraction. It was loud in there. There was, there, we were, there was the anxiety of, can we win? Can we make the comeback? There's people yelling at him. He's got uh, non-coach backseat driver Eva yelling. And I'm yelling. And there's other people yelling. Everyone's yelling around. And he gets a little bit lost. He doesn't know what to do. And so he, he yells at the floor captain, who happens to be the setter, Marcus. And he says, Marcus, I think I'm out of rotation. And Marcus, because he doesn't know what to do, looks at Eva and says, hey, coach. And I'm over here, and I heard, hey, coach. And I look over, and Marcus is not talking to me. Marcus is talking to backseat coach driver Eva Ty Williamson. Hey, coach, are we out of rotation? And he was like, I think you are. I think you are. I said, hey, what's happening here? And Marcus looks at me, and I'm looking at him, and he says, ah, uh, coach, I think we're out of rotation. I was just checking with coach if that's it. I said, how many coaches you got? He says, oh, you're coach. Well, who's that? That's coach? No. Who's your coach? You are. 
okay, then listen to me. He says, it's not my fault, coach. And then he points at Alan, who's standing like right next to me in the back where he says, Alan is the one who's lost. I look over to Alan. I said, Alan. He said, yeah, coach. I said, who were you talking? He says, I was yelling at coach down there. I said, who's your coach? And he says, you are coach. I said, who's your coach? And he said, you are coach. And then I turned around just to be sure. And I said, read the name on the back. And he says, that's coach, coach, timey. That's you. I said, right. So you asked me. And now ask me. And he says, am I in rotation? I said, yes. And then he goes out there and he plays his butt off. And he does amazing. He's just passing like a machine down there. He comes out and he's like, ah. Leaning in, I said, who's your coach? And he says, you're my coach. You know why? Because we traveled together. When we first got together, I told him, you play hard, hard work, heart work, and teamwork. And then we'll let this go as far as we can. But you've got to trust each other and you've got to trust your coach. And so they trusted their coach all season long. We drove to schools that I didn't know existed. It was so far there were rest areas. You know you're going far when there's a rest area between you and the place you're going to. We drove to those places. I took them low through the valley of the Cajon Pass. Up into Victorville. You know, the one game we won, we were coming back down, and, and the, the road, that one road Cajon Pass shut down. We were on the freeway for like two and a half to three hours. They were making TikToks and singing songs, living their best lives, and all I could think of is, I need sleep. We had been together. Me and my co-coach, Matt McFarland up there, who drove and so we revisit this moment. And here's the truth, friends. These knights, they were going to win. They're just good. They didn't need me to coach them. They could have had anybody coach them. And Coach Eva's a phenomenal coach. She could have coached them, and they would have won. But it was my task and my honor to walk beside each one of these boys. I called a timeout in the third set because I could, I could feel that the momentum had changed. And I knew that we had the spirit to win, though we were still down a game. And I pulled him in and I said, hey. And I said, what, what's the call for a coach? And I said, I want you to know whether you win or lose, that your lives are still beautiful lives. Whether you win or lose, you come off this court. I want you to live and be the best champions you can be. I want people to feel good when they're around you, knowing that you care and that you're gracious, and that you're loving, and that you are a person who follows in the footsteps of Jesus. I didn't say all that, but that was where my tone of my heart was coming from. And then in our fifth set, right before the closing score, I called one more timeout. And they said, yes, coach. And I said, I just called you here to tell you we're going to win. <laughs> I just wanted you to breathe that in. And they came out and they finished off our set. In fact, it was Camden, uh, Matt's son, who finished the last point uh, between him and, and, uh, and Jaden, who were going back and forth as those outside hitters. And I couldn't be more proud to have been the one to choose, uh, that they choose to be their shepherd, who got to mentor them, not just through games, but in life and in ethics 
and in relationships. I think, you know what? Sometimes in the distractions of our world, it's easy to get lost. Let's keep our eyes on the good shepherd, the coach who already has a victory for us. Be well.